Again, we are beginning a new letter. If you'd open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is more than likely the oldest book that we have in the New Testament. This city of Thessalonica was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, and it was a very large city for its time. The population was probably over 200,000 citizens. It was like Corinth in that it was a, a port city. It was located at the intersection of two major Roman roads, one of the few cities that Paul wrote to that still exists today. It's not called Thessalonica today. It's called Thessaloniki. And it's home to over a million people. And again, this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the church. And again, it's a good, there's a good chance that this letter is the oldest book that we have in the New Testament. It was written just 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's time in Thessalonica was very, very short. After Paul was rescued from a Philippian prison, if you recall, the jailer in that prison and his entire household were saved. He was encouraged to leave town, and he journeyed from Philippi to Thessalonica, and there he shared the gospel, and we read that many Greeks and some Jews became born again, and he planted a church there, and he appointed elders, and he helped prepare this young church for the work of the ministry. And he did this all in a little more than three weeks. What have you done in the last three weeks? What have I done in the last three weeks? In a span in a li- of, a, of just over 21 days, Paul was able to share the gospel, plan a church, and equip the church for the work of the ministry. If you would, open to Acts 17. Keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 17, we get a little bit of history here of Paul's time in Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17, verse 1, Luke writes, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where, they were in, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one we have been waiting for. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. If you only had three weeks to live, I'm sure you'd be very careful about how you spend your time. Now, the average person lives about 27,000 days. That's if you're an infant. How many infants do we have in here? None. Okay. So if you're 25, 
you on average have about 18,000 days to live. If you're 50, 9,000 days. If you're 65, around 3,500 days on average left to live. And that may seem like a lot of time, but it's not, is it? If any of you have had a, a loved one, which I'm sure all of us have, a loved one pass, you know that you would give anything for just one more day with them. But we think we have a lot of time. I know this because of how we spend our time. In 2017, this is six years ago, in 2017, a study surveyed thousands of people just to see how people were spending that time. The average person spent about 0.7% of their life exercising. 6.8% of their lives socializing with family and loved ones almost 30% of their time sitting down at work or at home, and 40% of their days, about 10,500 days, looking at a TV, a computer, a phone, or a tablet. And these numbers don't even include sleeping. So if you add sleeping to staring at a screen, that's over 70% of our lives. We spend 70% of our lives either sleeping or staring at a screen. No wonder everyone's busy because we got a lot of sleeping and TV watching to catch up on. 70% of our lives. And that was in 2017. Do you think that number has gone down or do you think it's gone up? In 2020, the average U.S. adult will spend the equivalent of 44 years of their life staring at a screen. Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica is a reminder of how important it is to redeem the time we have been given on this earth, investing the hours that we have in investing in eternal things, because there's not a day to waste. In Ephesians 5, 15, Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because these days are evil. We studied last week in Colossians 4, verse 5, Paul writes, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, those who are unbelievers, redeeming the time, meaning buying back the time, making every opportunity, making use of every opportunity that God gives us. Psalm 90, verse 12, the psalmist writes, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The wise man or the wise woman knows that their life is short, and they spend it well. James 4.14, James writes, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Because our time here is too short to
to waste. There's so many people that are worried about the coming end times, and they're more worried about that than they're worried about making the most of the time that they have. Our time here is short. So Lord, use this letter to the Thessalonians to teach us to spend the time that you have given us well. Because this church that was built on the foundation of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, they spent their time well. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the, thir- to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Here's the thing about the church in Thessalonica. They almost immediately faced persecution. As soon as Paul showed up and shared the gospel and people became saved and the church was planted, immediately persecution struck. Again, in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, I hope a few of you kept your finger there. If not, it will be on the screen. Luke adds here in chapter 17, but the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. The Jews who were not persuaded became envious and they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So here are Jews who are jealous that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are getting all the attention. So they hire some evil men to get a mob together, to start a riot, and they attack the house of Jason, and they bring them out to the people. But they didn't find Paul there. In verse 6, but when they did not find them, they dragged out Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That is the best compliment a Christian can receive. They're turning the world upside down. Because you've heard it said, if the world's already upside down and you turn it upside down, what are you doing? You're making it right. Verse 7, Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Do you think these Jewish men cared about the decrees of Caesar? Caesar was the oppressor. They despised the Roman government and the place that the Romans held in their lives. But when it was beneficial for them, they appealed to Caesar. And what was their accusation against these followers of the way? They proclaimed there is another king, Jesus. 
And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security, which is a security bond, from Jason, when they got some money out of him and the rest of them, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, which again was always their custom. So immediately after planting the church, Paul is chased out of town just as the church was getting started. There was probably for Paul a lot of sleepless nights as he worried about this Christian community. He just didn't get the time that he wanted with them to equip them to carry the the message of the gospel to their neighbors. But after some time had gone by, he heard a message back from Timothy. And Timothy told him that this church in Thessalonica, they weren't only surviving, they were thriving in the midst of persecution. Despite this open hostility that was being shown towards them, they were thriving. And so Paul wrote this letter to this church that he had to flee, saying, I thank God for you. That in the face of persecution, you're not just existing you're thriving. So how? How did this baby church that Paul only spent three weeks with not only still exist, but they are carrying out the mission of Christ and doing it well, smack in the middle of a godless culture and opposed by the so-called religious in their community, they were surviving and thriving. Now, it's been said it's not how you start, it's how you finish. But I'm going to amend that. I think how you start often determines how you finish. And how this church began, I think, is really, really important. Again, looking back in Acts chapter 17, if you're seeing a trend here, you might want to be in Acts 17, and you might want to be in 1 Thessalonians. We read that Paul, as his custom was, this is in verse 2, went to them, and he did three things. First, he reasoned with them. And he reasoned with them from where? The scriptures. What were the scriptures? Did he open up to his letters that he hasn't even written yet? What were the scriptures? The Old Testament. He took them to the Old Testament and he reasoned with them, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Paul reasoned, he explained, and he demonstrated that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah, our Savior. And that we are saved through his death and resurrection. Let's look at each of those words real quick here. First, he reasoned from the scriptures. That Greek word means he discussed thoroughly. He took the time to sit down and talk with these people about the scriptures. Nobody has any time anymore today to sit down 
and have a back and forth exchange with someone. What, what does this take? It takes some kind of working knowledge of the Word of God. But Paul took that, that time because it was that important. And he explained, that Greek word means to open thoroughly or to unpack. It's the same thing that we see in Luke 24, 27. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, to two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, 27, this is what Jesus did with them. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Whoever says the Old Testament isn't for today doesn't understand the importance of the full counsel of God's word. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, Paul explained and unpacked and thoroughly took them through how the scriptures point to the person of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, and he didn't stop in word, did he? What's the third thing he did? He demonstrated our life has to coincide with our message. Our life has to coincide with the message of the gospel. I'm not saying we live perfect lives, but people are too smart. Most people are too smart, and they can see hypocrisy. Paul demonstrated the gospel. That Greek word means to place alongside of, to serve up, to present before someone. It's used in reference to food and to truth. We don't just share the truth, we show the truth. So that's the foundation Paul laid. That's how Paul entered this town. He reasoned, he explained, and he demonstrated. And what happened? People believed. And what did that produce within this early church? Remember, it's just as important how you start. Because how we start helps us to finish well. The foundation matters. The foundation that we're building on matters. And what did that foundation of the gospel produce within the church that helped them withstand this immediate opposition? Well, what does Paul say back in 1 Thessalonians? He says, when I think about you, when I remember you, he remembers three things. The first in verse 3, I remember your works of faith. I remember your works of faith. What's a work of faith? James would say you can't separate works from faith. They're opposite sides of the same coin. 
Well, in John 6, 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. As he speaks to these crowds who are following him because he's doing the, the miraculous and he's feeding them, he says, you're following me for the food. And then Jesus says in verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? You ever ask that? God, how how can I do your will? I want to be used by you. I want to work the works of of God. That was their questions. That was their question. What may we do to do the work of God? Now, what were they really asking? You took a few fish and some loaves and fed 5,000. You fed all of us. How can we do this so we don't have to depend on you? How can we do the works of God so that we can do the same miracle. And and many people today, they want the miraculous. They want the things of God without God. They want the kingdom of God without the king. And that's what they were asking for. God, we want, Jesus, how do we do what you just did? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him, whom he sent. So again, we ask, how are we to do the works of God? We take Jesus at his word. We believe in him. A work of faith is just like it sounds. It's a work that's born out of our trust in Jesus Christ. It's obedience because we believe Jesus. And you say, oh, that sounds so simple. Is it? Because this is an issue of motivation. Why do we do the things that we do? There's works of faith, but then there's also works of greed. We do what we do because we want more money, because more money buys us more possessions, and we are seeking to fill a void with what we have instead of finding satisfaction in the only one who can provide it, and that's Jesus Christ. So there's works of greed. There's works of fear, things that we do because we're afraid of losing something. There's works of pride, things we do so that people will think a certain way about us. See, the motivation matters, and Paul says, I remember why you did what you did and why you're doing what you're doing, because you take Jesus at his word. You trust him. Jesus said to the crowds, let me be your sustenance. Let me be your bread. Trust in me. Believe in me. Take me at my word and you will do the works of God. Believe in me. See, when we take Jesus at his word, when we trust in what he will do for those who put their faith in him, that leads to bold 
actions of faith. So Paul says, I remember your motivation. I remember your works of faith. And then what does he say? I remember your labors of love. What's a labor of love? This church was growing in their understanding of what Jesus had done for them and how much he loves each of them, and they couldn't help but love him back and love one another. But what is a labor of love? Women, you know what a labor of love is. Because you had more of them. You had a child, and some of you did it again. You went through labor... My, my wife, bless her heart, she was convinced that she was going to have our first child with no medication. I was young and dumb. I said, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's, you do this. She went into labor, and we lived out on the 101, and Olive at the time. Her delivering OB was at Paradise Valley Hospital. We waited way too long, and we got on the freeway, and a cement truck had rolled over. And so we were sitting in traffic for probably a good hour. And I thought we were going to have a baby in the car, but we made it. And when we got in, my wife told the nurse, I'm having this baby right now. And they didn't believe her, and they were taking her time. But once they checked, then things started moving real quick. From the time we walked in that door to the time Luke was born was about 15 minutes. About 10 minutes in, she said, I would like the medicine now. And they said, we are way past that point. So she got her wish, whether she liked it or not. We have four kids. That was extremely painful, I think. Yeah. Why, why are you women willing to endure that labor Again and again, because of what that labor produces. In the 1940s, a reporter for Life magazine visited a well-known orphanage called Boys Town, and he noticed a 10-year-old boy carrying a much older boy on his back. And he asked, isn't he heavy? And the boy said, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. That's a labor of love. It's a little bit lighter when there's true self-sacrificial Christ-like love involved. It's why we labor. When we're motivated by faith and love, it is worth it. The suffering is worth it because we know what it produces and we deeply care about those who are around us. What we often see is people unable to carry others' burdens because they are too weighed down by their own. 
this mindset where, man, I can't carry one more thing. I'm weighed down by my own worry and my own anxiety. How can I even think about shouldering the load of someone else when I can't even shoulder my own stresses? And that's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. And then in Galatians 6, 1, Paul writes, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are, who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? What's the law of Christ? Love. Guys, not the world's definition of love, not an emotion, not a fleeting feeling, self-sacrificial, self-denying, tangible love. It's an action. It's a decision. Bear with one another's burdens. If, if you have a, a brother or sister in Christ who is overtaken by sin, come alongside them. How can I help you? How can I walk with you through this? How can I shoulder some of this burden? I want to see you free. How can I help? Bear one another's burdens and keep in mind that we could be in the same place ourselves. Don't stand at a distance and judge and mock and ridicule. Come alongside. That's our instruction. And this church was doing it well. They took Jesus at his word and they labored in love for him and for one another. And then finally, Paul says, I remember this. I remember your patience of hope. Patience. One of those things that be very careful if you pray for it. Be very careful. What were they patient for? the return of Jesus. I mean, okay, that sounds really good, but, but what are we talking about here? There's a kind of patience that God wants to work out in us that helps us endure suffering and pain and opposition. Think about this for a moment. The night that Jesus was betrayed, knowing full well what the next day had in store for him, knowing full well that the next day his hands would be pinned to a wooden post and nails would be driven through his wrists and through his feet and a spear would be jammed into his side, knowing that he would be beaten beyond recognition and a crown of thorns would be shoved onto his head, knowing that a a cat of nine tails would be used, which was a whip that had metal shards and chunks of metal, and that would be whipped across his back. He knew that was in store for him. What did he do? Was he paralyzed with fear? John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given 
all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and he was going to God, what did he do? He got down on his hands and knees, and he washed the disciples' feet. That's mind-blowing to me. I don't even know what the future holds, and sometimes it's paralyzing. We don't know what tomorrow holds, and sometimes we're so stricken with anxiety, we can't even begin to think about doing what God has called us to do. And here is Jesus knowing full well that the cross was coming. He endured to the end, and he loved them till the end. Why? Because he knew his story didn't end on the cross. See, when you know the future, it changes how you live. Christian, you know the future. We know the future. That sounds dramatic, but that's a gift that God has given us. We know how this story ends, and we take it for granted. When this world has no clue about what tomorrow holds, we know Christ is coming back. And when you really believe it, it changes the way that you live. We say, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. But Lord, take that belief and grow it so it changes the way that we live and the way that we spend our time. The Lord is coming soon and there's people I know and love and there's people you know and love. They do not know Him. And we cry out, Maranatha, come quickly. But we need to understand, when we cry out Maranatha, as soon as he comes, that time is over. Today is the day of salvation. So this patience of hope, they knew what the future held. So the pain and suffering and opposition, it was well worth it because they knew how the story ends. Look at verse 5. I know we're moving right along here. Verse 5. For our gospel, Paul says, did not come to you in what? Word only. But also in power. And in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul says I, we didn't come in just word. We just didn't talk. There's so much talk today. So much ego. So many people just selling themselves. But there's nothing behind the words. That should not be the case for Christians. It should be show and tell. Paul says we came in word, but we also came in power. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you, you knew how we lived. See, Paul again is telling us why these, this body of believers in, in Thessal- Thessalonica was still thriving. Because when it was planted, it wasn't planted with just ideas about God. Oh, here's how, what you used to believe. Here's a new set of beliefs. No. The gospel that Paul preached had the power to resurrect dead men and women. 
Paul says, I didn't come to give new ideas about God. I came with the power of God. And this new church wasn't just a group of people that had a new idea about how to live. It were, they were men and women who were dead, and now they were alive. Guys, that's what the church is. That's what the true church is. We are a gathering of the resurrected. We are a gathering of those who used to be dead in our sins and now we're alive because of Jesus Christ. Here in this sanctuary, we are the land of the living. Do we live that way? When people walk in, is there again something distinctly different in how we act, what we say, how we treat one another? The land of the living should look dramatically different than the land of the dead. Paul says, I came in power. And that power is from God through His Spirit to transform those who are dead and give them new life. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not simply about new ideas. It's about a new heart and a new mind. It's about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they knew this because they saw it, the power of God at work in them. And Paul says, what was it to them? It was an assurance. This life-changing transformation was an assurance that this wasn't simply just whatever was popular in that day. No, this was the life-changing power of God. Would we expect anything less from someone who has been dead all their life and now they are alive? That's what the church in Thessalonica was, a community of the resurrected. Romans 8, 11, Paul says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Christian, let me remind you that the power of God, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, the same person, the spirit of God lives in you you. Just as Jesus told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to what? Bear witness. All right, let's look at verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Those are two words that you don't usually find together, right? Affliction and joy. How many of you love being afflicted? But Paul says you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. This is huge, and this kind of caps off our study. Where, when is there joy in much affliction? How, how do we make sense of that? When is there pleasure in the midst of pain? 
Didn't we already talk about that? It's when the pain has purpose. The greater the purpose, the greater the strength to endure. The higher the calling, the more we're willing to spend, the more we're willing to endure. And this pain, this affliction that Paul's talking about, it has eternal purpose. That was the example that Paul gave the church. In the midst of persecution, they were often, what was Paul and the disciples often doing as they were being persecuted? Beaten and thrown in prison. What were they doing? They were singing praises to God. And they weren't faking it. They were so grateful that they would be able to share in Christ's sufferings And they've counted it all joy to fall into those trials because they thought they were just experiencing a little bit of what Jesus had done for them. They were full of joy. In Acts 5, when the disciples were beaten by the Jewish council for their faith in Jesus, and then they were released, we read that they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. That's receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, when you spend yourself, when you pour yourself out for something or someone that is worthwhile, there is great joy in doing that. I mean, some of you played sports, right? Like four of you? How many of you played high school sports, college sports? Man, the bumps and bruises felt a little different when you won that Friday night after the game after a victory there were badges of honor and that's just a small scale understanding of the thrill of victory that we will have when Jesus returns those afflictions are what light and momentary because Jesus has already won the war So we can spend ourselves with the full assurance that the pain of our bumps and bruises, the pain of living and existing in this fallen world with fallen people, including ourselves, where we're hurt by one another and we hurt one another, the pain of all of that will be overshadowed by the joy of His presence and the joy of making His name known. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for but a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Okay, you guys have been so patient. Let's close here. Verse 8. For from the word of the Lord has sounded from... For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia, but in Achaia, but also in every place. 
your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the the wrath to come because of your works of faith, because of your labors of love, because of your patience of hope, because of your willingness to endure, you're, you've become a megaphone for the gospel. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Can the Lord say that about Calvary Central? From our community, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. If we truly desire that to be the case, we need to slow down and think about how we're spending our time. Do we really believe that Jesus is coming back soon? We've been given opportunities. We're given opportunities daily to show and to tell. And I promise this life as a believer doesn't make sense until we trust Jesus and we allow Him him to lead. Paul will go on here in chapter 2 and continue to praise God for His work in this early church. But again, I pray that it's a reminder to us. Let's make great use of the time that we've been given here. I want to close with just one more photo. Have any of you seen this face before? This gentleman's name is Masab Hassan Yosef. He is the son of one of the co-founders of that terrorist organization that we call Hamas. He's a born-again believer. According to his story, Yosef met a British missionary in 1999 who introduced him to Christ. And gradually, between 1999 and 2000, he embraced Christianity in 2005. He was baptized in Tel Aviv by a Christian tourist. And he left the West Bank and now lives in San Diego, California. And he's quoted as saying, religion steals freedom. It turns us into slaves against one another. He says, regardless of what religion it is, religion can't save mankind. Only Jesus can save mankind through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is the only way to God. That's why we, we're here. Love to meet that missionary someday. Because through the information that Yosef's provided, he has saved thousands of lives. But he credits, credits it all to his faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we are so grateful for um, our adoption that we stand before you as your sons and your daughters. 
Oh, You've done so much for us. You've given us so much. Lord, I pray that you would take the faith that we have this morning and you would grow it. That we would be primarily motivated by our trust in you and what you have said. That we would lay down our idols and all the things in this life that we serve, that battle for our, our attention. And that each day we would be growing in our trust. And, in, and we would be growing in our love for you and our love for one another. Because we know that that love, that Christ-centered love, makes the lifting light. It help us, helps us to share in one another's burdens. So increase our works of faith, increase our labors of love, and Lord, give us eternal an eternal perspective, a perspective that allows us to endure, to finish well. Lord, thank you for Jesus. We pray for, for the salvation of those who do not know you. And, and Lord, we have a, a small sphere of influence here that you've given us. And I pray that we're faithful, that we bear witness of who you are, not just in word, but in power. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.